Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path for spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing life's inevitable dance for all of us humans of falling down and getting up. We will be discussing how to face the challenges of life by choosing to embrace every experience as an opportunity for positive change. Mark Nepo is my guest today. Mark Nepo is a master teacher who has been convening circles and guiding retreats for 50 years all over the world. Mark is beloved as a poet, teacher, and storyteller. He has been called one of the finest spiritual guides of our time, a consummate storyteller, and an eloquent spiritual teacher. Mark has written over 25 books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, The Book of Awakening. His books have been translated into over 20 languages. He was also chosen as one of Oprah Winfrey Network's Super Soul 100, a group of inspired leaders using their gifts and voices to elevate humanity. Mark is the author of the book we're going to be discussing today, Falling Down and Getting Up, Discovering Your Inner Resilience and Strength. You can find out more about Mark Nepo at his website, marknepo.com. Nepo is just N-E-P-O, just how it sounds, marknepo.com. You can also follow Mark on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I also wanted to mention that Mark is leading an upcoming retreat, February 5th to 10th, 2024 in Baja, California, with a focus on what we're going to be talking about today, falling down and getting up. You can check the website, marknepo.com, for more details about that. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Mark. I'm really delighted you could join me today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you again. It's always a joy. Before we begin our dialogue about the divine dance of falling down and getting up, let's begin with a, a yoga moment, a moment of just being right here and right now. Om. So let's start by just paying attention to our body in space, just feeling whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our body in space. And in particular, paying attention to the surfaces that support our weight. Perhaps you are walking and can feel your feet on the ground or sitting in a chair. You can feel your weight in the chair. And then turn your attention to the breath. Just noticing as you take a fully conscious inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cooler temperature of the air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed as it passes out through the nose. Continuing to focus on your breathing, each breath, each moment. Here is a quote, something to contemplate from 
Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. We are called to rise in great and small ways throughout our life. We never know the extent of our divine potential until a time or a situation arrives that both requires it of us and allows it to come forth. Everything, all of our experiences, our so-called successes and failures, brings us to such a moment of divine potential. When we witness grace in action coursing through our life like a mighty river, any doubts we may have had about the greater reality are dispelled. We are lifted up, carried to a new understanding as we cooperate with the infinite. Once again, Mark Nepo, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm really excited to have you here to be able to talk about your book, Falling Down and Getting Up. We are speaking in January of 2024. It's the beginning of the new year, which seems to me to be an auspicious time to explore this dance that you write about, the life's inevitable dance for all <laughs> beings of falling down and getting up. I was really struck by the way that you started the book. You have a little poem as your dedication. I'm going to read that. The dirt that packs the plant is the beginning of beauty. And those who haul the piano on the stage are the beginning of music. And those who are stuck, though they dream of soaring, they are the ancestors of our wings. And you follow with a dedication for those who are stuck. Very striking to me that you began the book there. And I wanted to ask you about mm. that. So why did you start? Why did you want to start there, dedicating the book to those who are stuck? Because um, we all are stuck at one time or another. And it's uh, not only is it part of this rhythm of this dance of being uh, subject to gravity and life on Earth, but being stuck is a, I think, is a developmental uh, passage in the transformation process. Um, and so, you know, when we do get stuck and we get stuck emotionally and mentally, then we free, we don't see that whole cycle. We lose sight of it. Mm. And and often we need each other to help each other through the stuckness. But also, I I wanted to start there because. You know, as as that poem points up, suggests, is where we're, even when we're stuck, um, we are affected, we're all connected throughout time, throughout history. You know, uh, it's incredible to think, I mean, two examples from nature, I mean, just birds, you know, the, the very first birds, as far as we can tell, were reptiles who had webbed feet and the webbing under their arms grew and so they they leapt from tree to tree and because of the webbing they kind of glided a little in between and that was the first suggestion of flight and and then over millions of years you know here we are now 
the Arctic Tern, I believe, flies, migrates thousands of miles without ever touching ground. Mm. So that's one lineage. Uh, it doesn't serve us to say that the first birds failed. Um, <laughs> you know, we, every inch helps uh, whatever we do or don't do is connected. So, you know, it's, it's not helpful. It's, I think it's alienating to say, okay, this person didn't fly and I did. And now I have sympathy or compassion for them. No, it's because of them that maybe I'm able to fly. Mm -hmm. It's because of a failure of love that maybe I'm able to love this time around. And so I think that's, um, that's so important it, that it's all connected. Mm -hmm. mm, so beautiful. You write, this is to do with the title of the book, I believe. So you write, when medieval monks were asked how they practiced their faith, they said, by falling down and getting up. This is a human journey from which no one is exempt. We are constantly challenged to get up one more time than we fall, to open one more time than we close, and to put things together one more time than we take them apart. The Japanese proverb, Nana Korobi Yaoki, puts it this way, fall down seven times, stand up eight. I just absolutely loved, you know, that uh, perspective. In a way, I felt that the simplified versions of instructions seems to me to be very hopeful. That's all we need to do. Keep getting up. However, yeah. however, that simple instruction can also seem impossible at times when we are overwhelmed mm -hmm. by fear or by grief. So as we talk about starting with those who are stuck, what's your advice to those who are stuck, who are feeling like getting up one more time is an impossibility? Yeah. And so let me also, as, as you know, as we're, from the times we've talked before, I, I don't have answers. I can speak to these things um, because I'm human and, you know, I just we just compare notes. Um, well, I think that the 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 what I would offer is and I, and I would start with a quote from Rilke. You know, Rilke said the great poet Rainer Maria Rilke, you know, he said, let everything happen beauty and terror no one feeling is final keep going mm. and you know we all know from the the buddhist perspective the notion of impermanence which we all we all feel oh, we're all going to die and we will at some point but the notion of impermanence within a life also means that no matter what difficulty we're in nothing stays the same mm. it will change it will we'll be stuck and then we won't be stuck we'll move through and then we won't and it will you know and, and I think that you know when I was looking in so my my counsel if you will to anyone when they're experiencing a stuck moment or passage is to breathe and to hold nothing back and I try to give my full heart's attention to the nearest piece of life before me until it becomes my teacher. Mm. 
It could be a fly on a window. It could be the leaf fluttering on the bare branches, the one leaf that remains. And, you know, there is always a teacher nearby. And I think whatever we can do to allow the flow of life to keep, to continue, you know, gives us perspective. You know, as I was learning about this rhythm, and, and it's true that no one can, no, no one signs up for falling down. We don't say, give me two, you know, <laughs> right. we, we can't escape it like gravity. And when we back up enough, we do see that it's a dance over time. And so the question is not, you know, we waste so much time trying to avoid falling down when there's a skill to it. There's a set of ways to be with it um, that we all have to personalize and learn. And it was interesting, you know, when I heard, you know, this, the whole theme of falling down and getting up, it brought me back to my cancer journey many years ago. And when I had a rib removed from my back and I, I woke up, felt like someone pushed me out of a plane and I, I woke up after I landed. And, uh, and there was this nurse up close very soon saying, get up, we're gonna walk. And I was like, who's gonna walk? <laughs> <laughs> you have a good time. Um, right. And, um, and then she leaned closer and got softer and she said, two steps forward, one step back. Falling down and getting up. Fall down seven, get up eight. And, and then as I was, and so that's, that's a way of healing. It's a way of growing. You know, it's not just a straight line, you know. And, um, and then as I was working on the book, you know, I discovered that in the Hindu Upanishads, which are the anonymous ancient texts of the Hindu tradition. Um, they're filled with amazing metaphors. And one such metaphor, it talks about how a caterpillar, a caterpillar will bunch itself up and move backward in order to move forward. Mm. Two steps forward, one step back. It bunches up and then it goes forward. So it's always kind of going back and forward but but keeps going a little bit further and they use this metaphor in the Upanishads saying this is the rhythm of spiritual growth mm-hmm. so it, it seems uh, like a rhythm of life on earth yeah mm. beautiful So the title of your book, Falling Down and Getting Up, really speaks to this transformative journey that we're talking about, one that is familiar to all of us. You express it really well in your poem, Anthem. So would you be willing to read that poem? Oh, sure, of course. Anthem. Yes, you fell down. I feel for you, or I have fallen many times. Now you must get up. I know it isn't easy. I know it will take time. Remember, the seed can't imagine breaking ground and the fledgling can't imagine flying. And so your broken heart can't imagine finding its way. But life is this repeating journey from sleep to wakefulness, from blindness to sight, from fear to love. No matter how many times we fall, we are just beginning. 
Hmm. I really love that. So thank you for that. Um, Would you say more about this pattern of transformation and the choice points is how you described in the book, the choice points that falling down presents to each of us? Well, you know, we're, we are always, I'll start with, you know, I was the first time I was teaching from, uh, from this book last uh, fall, um, I was at a retreat center, Mercy by the Sea in Connecticut, wonderful place. And, um, and in the group, it's a rather large group of over 100 people for the weekend. And, uh, and there was a retired nun, she was probably in her 80s. She sat in the front row and, um, and she was very present, but didn't really say anything. And the final day of the retreat, she raised her hand and she said, you know, I fall down more than I used to. And there's a lot of kind souls who help me up. But now I say before they help me up, wait. I need to feel the downness. And in that moment, she was the teacher. And, and so this, you know, and so let me juxtapose that with when I was a boy in fourth grade, you know, you'd go out in recess. And I think it was the first time I fell, really fell, like took a trip and took a spill and scraped up my elbows and knees. And I was a little bloody and, you know, getting ready to cry and um but i realized suddenly about the downness i had never up until that point in my little life been flat against the earth mm-hmm. and in my little boyness i i it, it, you know i said well wait a minute i can cry later what is this what is this i i had never taken into or was aware of that there was something holding us up mm-hmm. and so literally the earth is holding us up but you know emotionally spiritually um when we fall down we have that opportunity to feel the downness to feel everything that is holding us up mm-hmm. and that can't take away our pain or our darkness but it can right size it and so as soon as we fall down, paradoxically, we are in touch with all the resources of wholeness. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's so great. So you write about the teaching process that you use, which you describe as convening circles. And you write in the book, my want here is to have this book simulate as much as possible the magic and synergy that occurs in those circles, which I have been blessed to convene all over the world. So I wanted to ask, why did you choose that format for this book, simulating the experience that attendees can have at one of your circles? Well, that that I must give, be in gratitude to my publisher and friend Joel Fotinos at um, St. Martin's, um, and because we're in conversation regularly, and he had been for a while um, asking me about my teaching, and he kind of noticed, well, you have a really, you know, you teach a lot more than most of my other authors, and he kept asking about it, and then finally he offered this question. He said. Huh, he goes, if someone couldn't be in one of your circles, what book, what kind of a book would be closest to that experience? Mm-hmm. 
what an invitation. So that set me off to try to make this book like that into that invitation. Um, and I do, you know, and I do feel that the life of my teaching and the life of my writing uh, wonderfully keep blurring. There is a wonderful rhythm where, um, you know, when we're in honest conversation, whether it's in a circle or here, and uh, that if I am asked a question or someone shares their experience, then I feel it touches something in me that makes me surface something I didn't know I knew. And then I have to go, oh, I should explore that more. And so then I take notes and come back here in my, my study and explore that. And then I bring that back out into the next group. And it, it weaves, it's just a joy, really. It's mm. lovely. So you write in the book about surviving the bout of cancer in your mid thirties. And you write, once on the other side of my cancer journey, I realized that the things we suffer and the things we love provide us with an inner curriculum. When we least expect it, it is working with what we're given while staying close to what we love that is a constant teacher. Again, when, when we least expect it, it is working with what we're given while staying close to what we love that is a constant teacher. This is followed in the book by several what you call thresholds that you have been drawn to learn from and speak to over the years. And I was really struck by these as examples of the invitation that you present for listeners to view adversity from a new perspective, facing the challenges of life by choosing to embrace every experience as an opportunity for positive change. So I really enjoyed reading this section because it became, it gave me the feel for being in one of the circles. And I wanted to oh. share, that, you know, share that with listeners. So I wanted to list a few of these, what you call thresholds, and then uh, the writing prompts, the journal prompts that you give. Um, and then uh, ask you to comment about sure. you know, about this process. Well, whatever you want to comment on. So the thrust, the first one threshold was awakening to the paradox and true gifts of suffering. The journal prompt you give is to describe an interior space that suffering has opened in you. And I just thought that was just fantastic describe an interior space that suffering has opened in you so would you say more about that sure sure so you know the paradox of it, it seems to me that um suffering now this is not how we hurt each other right but the natural you know it seems to me that suffering is for humans what erosion is for nature mm. and and in a mysterious way, everything that can break will until all that's left is unbreakable. And of course, that's not a predictable or easy process. This is kind of like spiritual physics. And I think we need each other often to hold each other up to that process. And so, you know, one of the, you know, in many of the traditions, um, you know, in the Tibetan mythology, it is said that a, a spiritual warrior, not a military one, a spiritual warrior, a person, a soul committed to a life of transformation will always have a crack in their heart 
because that's how the mysteries get in. In in the Jewish tradition, in Deuteronomy, there is a, a passage that says God places his words like honey on the heart. And in the Talmud, there's a little exchange between a rabbi and his precocious student who thinks he's caught, you know, a mistake. He, he says, oh, rabbi, he goes, if God's omnipotent, why can't he put the words in our heart, huh? And the rabbi says, oh, grasshopper. <laughs> he says, because if God put them in your heart, you wouldn't even notice them. But when you live enough and your heart cracks open, then God's words that were on your heart like honey will soothe and move into that spot that's now exposed by life and by being broken open. So, you know, often a question I will invite folks to personalize is, can you describe a crack in your heart and how it changed your understanding of life? Yeah. It may have been early in life. It may have been yesterday. That, and then again, that, you know, this notion, we have this kind of, I think, false notion in the modern world, especially in America, that we're entitled to happiness. Mm. And therefore, you know, if we have a crack in our heart, it's a deficiency of some kind or a failure. And that really keeps us from growing because it's developmental. It's not a deficiency. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So another of the thresholds that you list is awakening to how we need each other to be complete and useful. And the journal prompt you give is to describe a recent experience in which you needed the presence and help of another in order to feel more whole. Did you want to? Comment? Yeah. Yes. I think that one of the, you know, there's, this is another paradox is that, you know, we, we need to develop and individuate and have a self so that we can put it down and be more together than alone. <laughs> and and part of this journey is we we often need you know um, we often need each other to discover our gifts to be useful. So there's there's two things here I would I would share. You know, um, one and and one is the link between inner work and service. And and you know Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu sage, he said so many things, but he said this wonderful. He said to try to save the world without liberating yourself first is like carpeting the earth rather than wearing sandals. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, so we, we can do good poorly mm. because unless we do that inner work, so we need to do that so we can, uh, be of use to each other. And so humbly, the second thing comes from a small poem of mine is that, you know, I, 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 how many times I've in, with, with good intentions gone to reach to help someone only to trip and have them help me. Mm -hmm. And so this small poem of mine, it's just one stanza, but it goes, the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give, has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Mm. So we are always um, doing this dance of 
of and I, and I think that being open and giving also connects us brings us further into our wholeness mm -hmm. as a reminder to our listeners today on the yoga hour my guest is renowned author poet and spiritual teacher mark nepo his new book that we we're talking about is falling down and getting up you can find out more about mark at his website marknepo.com and also follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and find him on YouTube. This link to Mark's website will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So Mark, you have a chapter called In the Awakened Flow. And I this was particularly drawn to this because you use a medical analogy that spoke to me as a retired physician. So I'm going to mm. read a little bit here. By virtue of being human, we are asked to neither deny our suffering nor let our pain define us. When we deny our pain, our heart stops flowing. This can lead to emotional blood clots. When we let our pain define us, we can't stop bleeding. This in turn can lead to emotional hemophilia. Both <laughs> are life threatening. Somehow we need to stay in the awakened flow between these extremes, which affirms that we are alive in our vulnerability and part of a larger current that carries us. When in the awakened flow, we are each a vessel for spirit, able to carry a delicate and vibrant portion of being into the world. So would you speak more about this idea of being in the awakened flow? Yeah, thank you. And and I think this ties into the choice points we were touching on earlier as well. So it seems to me, you know, uh, we want so much to have a how-to. Here's what we do to do this or that, A, B. And there is no how-to. Um, you know, we are ever making choices and, I, and from my experience, it, it's as if this awakened flow is like a corridor of aliveness mm. that we need to return to. And our personal spiritual practice, whatever informs it, we are always veering a little to the left, a little to the right. Oh, we have to come back in here. Did I, did I, was I too withheld today? Oh no, now I'm gonna open my, oh now today was, did I give myself away? You know, we're back and forth always. And, and the same thing about, you know, about are we not feeling or are we drowning in our feeling? And how do we, what is the lived practice for each of us? And, and so each question becomes a practice by which we find these choice points. And, you know, when my father, who's now gone, but he uh, loved the sea and I grew up on a 30, not we had it, I grew in a home, but, you know, I spent a lot of time on a 30-foot sailboat, a wooden sailboat he built. And, and as a boy, and, you know, this became a lesson many decades later, but as a boy, he must have sensed I had real, I could focus, you know, and so he would put me on the steering wheel, the tiller, and there'd be a directional compass, and he'd say, I want you to go this way, you know. And I would, you know, and only decades later, I mean, if, if you've ever done that, even when you're on course, the needle ne never stands still. And, you know, decades later, this is a great metaphor 
for this corridor of aliveness, for our choice points, for our course, daily course correction. Because even when we're on course, we're not done. It's a little to the left, a little to the right. Did I listen enough? Did I lose myself? Did I, you know, here, am I in, am I forming a blood clot in my heart or am I bleeding too much? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is, you know, the same thing you could say, like you can build a home. There's other, lots of other ways that this parallels and, you know, you can build a home, but you, you can't build a home on where you can't, there's no, the foundation is so hard, like granite. Mm -hmm. You can't get anything in there. But you neither can you build a home on sand. And so what is the soil of your heart that allows you as a spirit to live in the world, not too hardened and not too porous? And no one knows how to answer this, but this is this is our challenge, each of us in a very lived way. And those are the, the choice points, because because everyone has to both survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. And those require kind of twin skills that we need to learn firsthand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, I really like both of those um, metaphors, I guess they are <clears throat> analogies of, you know, you steering the boat <clears throat> and this idea of even though you're kind of going the right direction, you still need to make these course corrections kind of all the time. And I haven't spent that much time on boats, but I have at one time or another steered a boat. And I remember that about it. It's kind of frustrating because like you'd think you were going the right, you know, <laughs> but then there are all these like currents, you know, that are pulling you maybe a little bit. And so you just have to, you know, you have to take those in, into account. And then I like the idea of the corridor, you know, that we're trying to find that corridor of aliveness. That's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, phrase. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. You share that in the South Indian tradition, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correct, but Alvar, is it Alvar? I believe that's it. Yes. It means those who dive deep, those who are immersed. Would you share the example of the 12 Alvars? Yeah. So this does come from the South uh, India, in India, the Hindu tradition. And it, and so the earliest example are what are called the 12 Alvars. And they were, they were Hindu poets, uh, poet saints who remained immersed and devoted to the unseen masters uh, of life. And by recording that, they recorded kind of the, uh, the hymns of the universe, which became so many of the Upanishads, and in particular, these 12 poet saints in the, in the seven and ninth centuries, they compiled thousands of these verses that formed, and I'm not sure if I'm gonna pronounce this right, a sacred text called the Divya Prabhanham, and so it's this notion of, and, and actually Upanishad in Hindu means uh, at the feet of a master. And it's known that there was no one master, so it's understood at the feet of an unseen master. Mm -hmm. So the question for us is, you know, um, in the daily life of our soul, we are the, or we are the descendants of these Alvars. We're one honest, honesty away from from immersing ourselves in the deep. And it's that immersion that 
that awakens and reawakens our soul and allows us to feel the connection between everything. So this, this immersion is, uh, it's our daily practice of being fully here, whatever will open us to it. And that, that immersion allows us to find that awakened flow or that harder aliveness that allows us not to deny our suffering and not to let it define us. You know, I think one of the amazing things is we have to always, we may need each other to help face what has happened to us, but we are always more than what is done to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. We are always more than what is done to us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always close the show with this, um, you carry your own wholeness, carry your own healing and wholeness within you, you know, which was a very powerful um, phrase to me in the yoga teachings, you know, that it is all within us, you know, and um, if God is um, omnipresent, then there is no place that you can be that God is not, you know, so anyway, along that same. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> we've your book and uh, this conversation we've been talking about the inevitable pain and suffering that that occurs in lives but um you also emphasize the need to find strength not only to survive but as you said you have to survive and thrive um would you share one of another of your poems the life after tears oh yeah and and let me share a little bit of where that comes from you know i because I, one of my oldest and dearest friends, Paul, um, when I was going through my cancer journey, he helped save my life several times. And, um, and we've stayed close through all these years, over 40 years. And in the last year and a half or so, he lost his wife to a very sudden heart attack. And, and he's just been devastated. And, um, and you know, it's, he's deep in grief. And and of course, I want to be and am there for him, and that's only bringing us closer. And he was visiting me, and um, after his wife died, and right here in my study, he was—I have a rocker right next to me. He was sitting right here in the morning. We were having coffee, and you know, and he and he teared up, and he said, "You know, I'm, I'm now in the life after tears." Mm. And you know, however we get there. And, and that was so powerful for me. Right. And however we get there, um, through great love or great suffering or, or both, that's when the real journey begins. Mm. That's when the real journey begins. And so that, you know, being with the, the wisdom that was coming out of his grief led to this poem, The Life After Tears. In the life before tears, there are endless plans, and we avoid the difficult feelings at all cost, as if grief, pain, and loss are canyons we'll never be able to climb out of. But then one day, while not looking, someone dear dies, or a dream breaks like a plate, and our world as we've known it is blown apart. Then we discover that falling in the canyon is our initiation and the river at the bottom is the only water that will keep us alive. I wish it were different, but the reward for being hollowed out is that the song then sings us. Mm. 
It's a very powerful poem to me. <clears throat> Would you perhaps say more, you know, about about this grief and survival? Sure, and 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 you know, and there's a whole, as you know, there's the whole um, middle section of the book is about pain and fear and grief as the deeper teachers, um, and and you know, in our society, let me just say too, you know, we we want to run from these deeper teachers so much that if someone wants to talk about it, we we think they're a downer or something, you know, or they're. And no, everyone, everyone experiences it. So, so we just need to talk about it to help each other through it. And I, so I think, you know, grief is just, boy, grief is a whole thing unto itself. And, and I don't know that we ever get over grief. We may get under it, but we never get over it. And, you know, my, my own experience of grief and, there were, you know, people who were uncomfortable with it. There were uh, people who wanted, uh, you know, Susan and I had a period of time, maybe, oh God, about maybe eight or nine years ago now, 10, where we lost many people within like 18 months, as well as our, our beloved uh, dog, child Mira. And um lost both my parents and her mother and a dear mentor of mine. And so we were, and, you know, a lot of, some people, not everyone, were waiting for us to get back to normal. Yeah. <clears throat> there is no, no, there is no normal. Right. right. But, you know, and, and I, like I said, uh, you know, uh, about, you know, the map is your, you know, you spend life creating dear maps. Mm. And then when you lose someone, the landscape has literally blown up. Yeah. And those maps, dear as they are, are no longer useful because the landscape is different. And paradoxically, you're thrown back into life just when you can't bear to do it to make new maps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and this is a, you know, and, and I think that, you know, there is no time frame on grief. I think the way you, um, you know, so if I take a, and this is also a metaphor for grief and for education. I, so if I take a, a like a, an eyedropper and I have a drop of iodine and I drop it into a glass of water, it colors the entire glass. Right. So on the one hand with grief, grief tints the rest of life yeah. so we'll you know often we ask each other or ourselves will I know joy again well yes but it will not look the same it'll be tint life will forever have the tint of what you've lost so life will continue um, but everything will have a coloration from having loved and lost and the education side of that is you know i remember you know in a, when i years ago teaching at a university and you know so so many so much of it was so rational in this kind of insistence that we're just we're just you know giving information to people we, we don't want to get messed up in their lives well no if you put 
knowledge like that eye drop of iodine into a person's mind and heart, it colors their being. You just can't walk away. We have a responsibility to keep company as the mind. And this is another falling down and getting up. The way the paradigms, the way that we understood the world breaks apart and we see anew. Yeah. You know, uh, Kierkegaard had a wonderful phrase. He said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Mm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not anxiety like going to the dentist, but yeah, when your frame, which is also part of the transformational de developmental passage, the world as you've known it breaks apart. Well, whoa, whoa, where am I? Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom till I find my new equilibrium. So there's so much we could do a whole hour on grief. And... <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the, it's a it's a big falling down and a big challenge to get up, you know, yeah. like that. In your chapter entitled Resilience and Prayer, you start with beautiful prose describing the point when you know you are ready to cope with a situation. So you write somehow when I face what is mine to face and empty myself of all that is agitating me, I go clear like a lake after a storm. It is then that I can see through the bottom of what is me, only to see that I share the bottom with all other beings. When I face my heartache and reach its bottom, there is the bottom of all heartache, which is both comforting and renewing. When we can be completely authentic, resilience is the flow of strength that comes to us from everything that is not us. When we can be completely authentic, resilience is the flow of strength that comes to us from everything that is not us. You call this being with a universal life force is your term. And in yoga, we call it oneness. Many, many names for the same thing. Um, so how can we cooperate? Well, actually, would you just say more about this bottom? I like, I really liked what you said about you seeing through the bottom of what is me, only to see that I share the bottom with all other beings. So yeah, so there's much, thank you. There's much to explore. And and, and I'll share how I come to some of this exploration to it personally. And to, so I have been, I have discovered over time for me that being authentic uh, leads us to experience oneness. Yeah. And uh, so in addition to it, making our relationships integral, it's also kind of like a prerequisite for oneness. And, and I think that, um, and when I can be thoroughly myself, whether it's whatever I'm facing, pain, fear, love, surprise, you know, enthusiasm, um, then I touch into the well of all who have felt pain or joy or enthusiasm. And there's no way that we, you know, we can conceptualize, but that's not the same as experiencing oneness, which I think comes through that. And so, you know, we think of resilience as, you know, having the strength in unto ourselves to endure and bounce back. Well, 
I think it's interrelated, you know, and my, I think resilience is touching into that, you know, whenever I'm afraid not to skip over my fear and not to drown in it, but to feel it and also feel at some point underneath me is the rest of life that's not afraid. Mm-hmm. And my job is to feel both. Feel my fear, but feel where it stops and where the rest of life begins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, uh, I, when my father was in the last year, year and a half of his life, and I would visit him when I could, I was in a, living, you know, quite a ways away. And um, uh, my brother was close by and doing much of the heavy lifting. And, but I, I found myself alone with him and i'm sure a lot of people can relate to this uh he had had a stroke um and i was feeding him applesauce we were just alone in the room and and it was so heartbreaking and beautiful and sweet and everything and life didn't stop things are clanging around in the hallway you know and there I am, and all of us, you know, like everything in my life was I just was putting that spoon in his mouth and taking it out without interrupting his breathing or hitting his teeth. And, and of course, you know, I began to tear and, um, and being, giving myself to that moment so fully, I tripped into a moment of wonder and then and staying with it to my surprise i was suddenly in a mo- in the moment of every adult child who ever fed a dying parent so by being completely myself i was now in the river of others past present and future and that that experience of, of uh, together, which was the reward for being completely authentic to my life, I've started to think of that as resilience. Mm. Wow. You can't plan it, but you can't, you know, by so you know so often in our modern world we seek love as a place to hide from the world but when we can truly give ourselves over and be real with each other i've come to see that i've learned how to love the world by loving one person completely that's beautiful So you write in the book, this then is our one assignment to make our humanness the lens through which light comes into this world. I'm going to read that again. This then is our one assignment to make our humanness the lens through which light comes into this world. Just would you want to say more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. We could talk the rest of our lives about that. Um, um, well, and it is this sense that through our humanness, the spirit reveals itself. 
And, you know, I think Buddha had suggested that light comes from within as well as from the sun. And it's through our humanness that it gets revealed. And, uh, and so we just simply have to be completely who we, who we are and, and meet what, you know, the, what's in the way is the way. Mm-hmm. What's in the way is the way and, and helping each other and meeting each other um, lets that light come through. When I've had, um, you know, deeper experiences of meditation as meditators know, you know, sometimes meditations are just so precious and wonderful and just come away with this beautiful sense of oneness. And in those times, it always strikes me that that's the job then, you know, that's the job is to, is to live that is to bring it off of the meditation cushion and, you know, to maintain some kind of connection with that, you know, in, in the rest of my life. And a lot of that then is service, like you said. I mean, once you, you know, once you see that and experience that, that deepest call then is to, you know, is for others, you know, to what can I do for, for the good Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah. And, it, and that's such a joy um, to, to keep the web of connection strong and alive. Yeah, beautiful. So you know, Mark, that we love your poetry, and I wanted, before we left, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share another poem with us, one, one that you choose. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I wanted to share, this is a newer one uh, called Inside Gravity, and, and, and you'll notice I'm kind of looking at like a Ganesh as I'm pondering this. So Inside Gravity, there is an ancient carving from India of an elephant balancing its weight with one foot on a lotus. And there are some who bark right away. That's ridiculous. The world is too much, and a lotus would be crushed. But I'm convinced this was offered as an image of what it is to be here. Once looking inside gravity, the eye immediately goes to the point where the foot touches the lotus. That improbable point holds the practice of being human how to balance the weight of the world on all that is dear wow great one love it (laughs) well thank you i'll send it to you okay that'd be great well as usual, Mark, when I'm speaking with you, time just flies. We've already come to the end of our time together. <clears throat> In closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, I, I think I would like to encourage uh, folks to, to trust your heart. I think it's the strongest muscle we have. And I think it is the conduit between spirit and the world. And I, I think to hold nothing back and to as much as you can to let the heart be our teacher. Mm. Lovely. For listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been poet and author Mark Nepo, and we've been discussing his new book, Falling Down and Getting Up. 
Mark has two international retreats coming up that you may want to check out on February 5th to 10th, 2024. Mark is leading a retreat in uh, Baja, California. The focus is on this topic that we've been discussing today, falling down and getting up. And again, another retreat, May 18th to 24th, 2024. Mark is leading a river cruise in France entitled The Gift of Deepening and Radiance in All Things. Those... Um, Events can be found on Mark's website, marknepo.com. We will have this link to Mark's website on our webpage at theyogahour.com. So thank you so much, Mark Nepo. It's always such a joy to speak with you. Thank you for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Oh, you're so welcome. It is a joy to be with you too. Again, for listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. We have daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., the afternoon at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30. All those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. You can find out uh, details about these at the CSE website, csecenter.org. There's also an upcoming retreat with Acharya Sundari Jensen called Live Your Higher Purpose Dharma Retreat. It will be offered in person at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, as well as online. And again, you can register and find out details about that at csecenter.org. We always want to make you aware of the sister podcast of this podcast, which is called Kriya Yoga Today, and that's with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which includes presentations from classes and talks that she has given. You can find out more details about that, again, at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Kriya Yoga Today. All these details, many more, are available at csecenter.org. Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, and then our assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember... You carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>